When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, before we get into this episode, I just want to give a shout out to Science Inspired Jewelry. Now, this is not a paid sponsorship or anything. The cool thing about this company is the pieces of jewelry they make are realistic versions of all kinds of things from every medical specialty or science-related kind of field. So you can get like a circle of Willis, a model of the limbic system, cardiac great vessels to molecular models of hormones like oxytocin or insulin. Last year, I bought Elizabeth a model of serotonin because she's in psychiatry. They literally have everything. So check out sciencejewelry1824.com or just Google Science Inspired Jewelry. I think you'll be really impressed. And please tell them inside the boards sent you. Probably if you order something, aren't going to get it in time to give the gift. But you can always, you know, if you're like me and it's Christmas Eve, which is when you do your shopping, uh, you can always print out what you got uh, ordered and just say, hey, it'll come in like two weeks or whatever. And now for a little (laughs) Christmas dubstep as our intro. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Yes, I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is the Inside the Boards podcast. A very exciting interview for you today with Dr. Ted O'Connell, who is actually joining Inside the Boards as one of our core team members. You can hear more in the interview about what we plan for ITB in the upcoming months. So yeah, yeah, I know, I know. We are late on this Step 2 Study Smarter series. And for that, my apologies clinical work and, you know, getting Ted aboard as well as some other team members uh, to set this platform up so that it's being built by other people who can consistently help us get out content and move the needle on some of the big ideas and big projects that we want to get out to you for your success in medical school. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. If you have time off, enjoy it. Don't study. Well, at least not all the time. Enjoy some moments with your family and friends and getting a break if you are so lucky to have one. And the only thing I'd ask of you, you know, if like Inside the Boards is on your Christmas gift list, just click the link in the show notes. We are trying to redo our website and logo. We want you to be a part of building the platform as well. So if you click the link in the show notes, you can take a short survey 
help us decide how we should present ITB to the world moving forward. Not gonna lie, I love our original logo, but our team members are less enthusiastic about it. And, you know, I'm not a dictator, so trying to be democratic about this. And really, it's about you. So please be involved in helping us not only by sharing it with your friends, but also helping us choose the graphics and design and presentation of ITB. This will be the last episode of 2018. We look forward to 2019, the release of our audio cue bank, Dr. O'Connell's involvement in ITB, and a number of other projects that we have coming down the pike. So stay tuned, tell your friends about the Inside the Boards podcast, and enjoy this interview with Dr. Ted O'Connell, whom you will be hearing more from in the upcoming months. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Today we have a very exciting guest who joins us, uh, Dr. Ted O'Connell. You may know him from his incredibly expansive work in med ed for quite a few years now. He is the author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, as well as Crush Step 1, plus 12 other books uh, he's published with Elsevier. Currently, he is a program director and professor of family medicine at uh, UC Davis. Among you know those two things, he's got a few other uh, key roles within the medical education space. Namely, he's the co-founder of Exam Circle, and he is the edit- editor-in-chief of Elsevier's upcoming Clinical Key MedEd Question Bank, which has provided us some material as a basis for discussion today. And most importantly, for our purposes, Ted has joined inside the boards and will be a co-host of this podcast in the upcoming months uh, as we kind of plug him into our platform. So, Ted, welcome, and uh, thank you so much for being involved. It's uh, pretty exciting. Thank you, Patrick. I'm, I'm really excited to be involved with Inside the Boards and, and to be part of everything that you are doing in this space. It's really exciting aspect of medical education. So thank you for having me on the show and, and as part of the platform. Yeah, absolutely. Did I forget anything in uh, reviewing your CV there? That was a pretty good review. I, I would say I actually have voluntary clinical professorships at a couple of schools. My The main involvement is at UC San Francisco. You are correct that I am involved with UC Davis as well, and also with Drexel University School of Medicine. But yeah, I think you captured overall quite well. I did forget too, which we should mention, you do have kind of an audiobook version of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, which is available as a podcast. Yes, that is available on iTunes. It's currently in production. I'm a little bit over halfway finished with it. So those chapters are rolling out as I'm able to get them completed, but it's available on iTunes. You can also find that and some other uh, things that may help with medical education through my website at tedxoconnell.com. Is that uh, Xavier? It is. I couldn't think of another uh, name that would go with X, but it's pretty cool middle initial. Um, Yeah, so we'll put a link in the show notes to um, all these things that you're doing. 
to start out today, let's uh, get into a little bit of teaching using this this experience that you have. We'll start with uh, one question here. And again, this comes from Elsevier's Clinical Key MedEd QBank. We'll start out, we've got a 52-year-old male with a 100-year pack-year smoking history who presents with a chief complaint of double vision. Patient states he has also had a dry mouth and some difficulty swallowing. His strength seems diminished, and he often has a tingling sensation over his thighs. On physical examination, the physician notes the initial absence of deep tendon reflexes, which could only be evoked with repeated tapping. Leg strength seems significantly less than expected for the patient's age and condition. These findings are most consistent with which of the following conditions? And we have A, Eaton-Lambert syndrome, B, Guillain-Barre, C, myasthenia gravis, or primary hyperparathyroidism. How would you walk a student through how to approach a question like this? What I would do, Patrick, is really begin at the start of the vignette here. There's a key indicator right off the bat with the very significant smoking history and this still relatively uh, younger male who's presenting with double vision. So that's the initial abnormality. And then as you go through the question stem here, there are some other things that really pop out. First is the dry mouth and difficulty swallowing. And then we get into the issues with strength. And then there's some real key physical findings in here. The Uh, absence of deep tendon reflexes, which is a significant abnormality. And then the interesting part where the uh, they can be evoked only with repeated tapping. So that should really kind of raise some suspicion of something neurologic going on there. And then a decrease in leg strength. So right off the bat with that smoking history, I would hope that the reader of the question would be thinking along the lines of a lung cancer. And then the question is, what else is going on here that's causing this other constellation of symptoms? And so that's then where we get into our four answer choices. And I think it would probably be worth just going through them one by one. Okay. So the first one was Eaton-Lambert syndrome. I remind people that I'm an OBGYN, so some of these things I don't encounter too often clinically. But uh, from this, you know, I can remember that uh, we're going to have some sort of weakness in the presentation and that it's associated with uh, certain forms of lung cancer. So there's two pertinent positives that would support that diagnosis. How else should I think about that? What if uh, those are the only two sorts of things that I have to support my decision to go with answer choice A? Yes. And so answer choice A, Eaton-Lambert syndrome, is the correct uh, answer in this question. And even if you are not completely sure that this is Eaton-Lambert syndrome, just going through some of the other options may help you rule some of those out and kind of narrow down your potential answer choices. So I'm going to suggest maybe we start by talking about Eaton-Lambert syndrome. In this syndrome, the weakness classically improves with repetitive stimulation. And we can talk about the pathophysiology behind that, but that's part of that question stem where the deep tendon reflexes were not initially evoked, but could be with repeated tapping. 
Eaton-Lambert syndrome is seen with small cell lung cancer, and it can be also seen in other diseases like sarcoidosis. So thinking, going back to our question stem with this patient's smoking history, that aligns well with the possibility of uh, an underlying malignancy. And then the way a, a diagnosis of Eaton-Lambert syndrome is made is with uh, an EMG, an electromyographic study, and that will show an increase in muscle action potential amplitudes with repetitive nerve stimulation, which is essentially what you're seeing on exam when they're with the repeated tapping on the deep tendon reflexes. So the takeaways for Eaton-Lambert are look for a history suggesting uh, malignancy, specifically uh, small cell lung cancer, a presentation involving muscular weakness and uh, a finding such as successive stimulation of a muscle inducing or triggering action potentials, which will trigger the muscle to essentially work. Is that correct? You've said that very well, yes. And then finally, you get an EMG to diagnose it. That is correct. All right. So what if I thought Guillain-Barre syndrome? From my perspective, if I'm looking at a stem, I'd want to see a recent history of a viral illness and then an ascending a history uh, and physical exam consistent with an ascending uh, paralysis. You do have some crossover, I guess, between uh, Guillain-Barre and Eaton-Lambert here, the loss of the deep tendon reflexes, but because they're evoked by repetitive tapping, it sort of points you away from uh, GBS. So what differentiating factors or, or learning points would you want to offer related to this one? Yes, I think you delineated that very well. You typically do see Guillain-Barre following a viral type illness or even sometimes after immunization. You want to look for an ascending symmetric weakness and really a, a, a complete loss of deep tendon reflexes. And this is what differentiates Guillain-Barre from Eaton-Lambert. When we saw Eaton-Lambert, it improved eventually with repetitive stimulation. But in Guillain-Barre, those deep tendon reflexes are, are just lacking and, and they do not improve with repeated stimulation. Got it. The next uh, answer choice C was myasthenia gravis. I would say in the review books, this is often discussed in the same section as Eaton-Lambert. So it's probably a, a subject rife for confusion between those two diseases. So how would we differentiate myasthenia gravis from Eaton-Lambert? Yes. So myasthenia gravis can be seen as a paraneoplastic disease. So in the initial part of the question stem with the possibility of an underlying lung malignancy, it does bring myasthenia gravis as, a pos as part of the differential diagnosis here. But the key with myasthenia gravis is that it worsens with repetitive stimulation, the muscle fatigue that is. So the exact opposite, <laughs> the, essentially the exact opposite gets worse with repetition and improves with rest. And importantly, both sensation and the deep tendon reflexes are preserved in myasthenia gravis. It's actually the muscle weakness itself that, that worsens in, in this condition. Okay, choice D was primary hyperparathyroidism. So how would we differentiate that from Eaton-Lambert? Well, you may think about hyperparathyroidism in the setting of the possible underlying malignancy that we uh, see in this vignette. And with hyperparathyroidism, what you get is hypercalcemia. But when you have hypercalcemia, you get 
hyperreflexia as opposed to the diminished deep tendon reflexes that we see in this question stem. And that, that would make sense because in hypocalcemia, you'd have a, a tendency to have diminished or less prominent deep tendon reflexes, if I'm not mistaken. So takeaway here, Eaton-Lambert is characterized as a neuromuscular disorder in the presynaptic terminals, um, resulting in a fail to release failure to release sufficient quantities of ACH because of antibodies to the presynaptic voltage-gated calcium channels. I am so glad I don't have to think that deeply about the basic science of these things anymore, but that's also something worth remembering as far as the pathophys goes, I'd say. Anything to add? No, I think we covered that uh, case quite well. So let's move on. Let's uh, learn a little bit about you and introduce you to our audience. We'll start with some more personal things and then get into your work within the med ed space. So first off, where'd you go to school? I went to undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, and following that, went to medical school at UCLA, which is now called the David David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles. And following that, I did my uh, residency and chief residency at Santa Monica UCLA Medical Center. In uh, what? Family? Yes, family medicine. Okay. You know, we've we've got some fourth years uh, out there interviewing and whatnot. Now, any uh, quick advice or uh, things you can offer about why you chose family over other uh, specialties you may have been interested in? Was it ever a, you know, like a conflict for you? Oh, I had a lot of thoughts about different specialties along the way as I did my third year rotations. I, I went into medical school kind of thinking about pediatrics and emergency medicine and family medicine, uh, found a lot of other specialties that, that I did enjoy along the way. With family medicine, I was particularly drawn to the longitudinal nature of the specialty and the ability to develop relationships with patients over time. I enjoyed the variety, the focus kind of on community medicine and population health and social justice were all of particular interest to me. And I think ultimately what happened was I went to my end of third year rotation and it just felt like it brought it all together. I really liked the variability in terms of the patient care and the ability to do procedures and clinical medicine. And I kind of felt like I had found my people. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And finding your people, I think, is a, I guess, underappreciated metric in terms of how to decide which specialty to go into. You know, if the personalities within one specialty seem to kind of overall match up with yours, I'd say that that's a, a really good thing to put into the pro column if you are or do have some conflict about which specialty to choose. What about uh, those things you mentioned, the longitudinal nature, the, the variety that's involved in family? Do those uh, still get you being uh, out of uh, residency and in practice now? Oh, they absolutely do. Those relationships and the ability to just get to know people is a big part of, of what I really liked. And I think what ultimately made me decide that emergency medicine wasn't the ideal specialty for me. I think pediatrics still would have worked well, uh, although I, part of what I like about family medicine is we don't graduate the uh, pediatric population out of our panels as, as they get older. We're, we're able to continue to care for them throughout the life cycle. 
That makes sense. All right, let's return to more of the uh, uh, the Boers related stuff. So, when you were in medical school, what sorts of resources did you use when studying for the boards? Well, it's interesting, Patrick. It's been long enough that there were actually relatively few resources available uh, for studying, which is what prompted uh, me to get involved with developing some board resources. When I went through, there were no question banks that existed. There were a couple of pretty thin board review books. And what actually happened is as I was studying for USMLE Step 2 with a couple of classmates, we were using a book that was pretty rudimentary. And I made the comment to the group, I think we could do a book like this and do it better. And that is what actually prompted us to uh, put together the first board review book that I got involved with. And that was USMLE Step 2 Secrets? No, this was actually years before that book became available. It The original one was a book called uh, Classic Presentations and Rapid Review for the USMLE Step 2. Uh, and it was a very popular book for a relatively short period of time until some of the other big publishing companies got involved and First Aid came out and and a few other books. And then USMLE Step 2 Secrets was actually one that got put together several years, multiple years after that. Would you say that's the most successful, popular, or most used uh, book of yours? Yes. USMLE Step 2 Secrets is uh, a very popular book, very widely used and read. Um, It's a very nice size that allows students to carry it around in their pockets, which I think is a big part of what uh, makes it popular. It's also very digestible. You can read it in in fits and spurts uh, because it's really written in the Socratic style. And then after that, I would say that uh, Crush Step 1 and USMLE Step 3 Secrets are probably the next most popular after Step 2 Secrets. And what was the order then in which you wrote those uh, top three books? So USMLE Step 2 Secrets uh, was the first one that I got involved with. I had actually written a couple of um, clinical books prior to that. There's, there's a series called Instant Workups and Instant Workups for uh, Medicine is actually a pretty popular one. And then I was involved with um, a big procedure book for primary ca- care called Fenninger and Fowler's Procedures for Primary Care. So those actually preceded my involvement with Step 2 Secrets. And then we did Crush Step 1 and then USMLE Step 3 Secrets, if I'm remembering this in the correct order. Well, you do a lot. Uh, so I'd imagine uh, you have a lot going on at, at one point. So Maybe the chronology uh, all blends together. So you've been involved uh, writing books and resources, helping students uh, do well on their boards and within medical school. I guess I'd ask, did you always do well in uh, your test taking during medical school? And uh, if you had any failures or struggles, uh, what can you share with the audience about what you learned from those experiences? That's a great question, Patrick. Uh, My greatest struggle in medical school was in a first-year histology course. It was a course where we spent a lot of time looking into a microscope at all of the things that you look at in a histology course. And on the first exam, I pretty much bombed it. And for me, it was really just a matter of learning to sit down for hours at a time with that microscope and and learn pattern recognition. I, I realized in myself that this 
identifying things in a microscope was not my strength, which is probably makes it a good thing that I'm not a pathologist. Yeah. Uh, but, but I just, it, I committed myself to it, put in the time, worked with a couple of other classmates and kind of utilized an opportunity to test each other to make sure that I would be simulating what an exam setup would look like and was fortunate to be able to really turn it around and went from bombing the first exam to doing it absolutely fine on in that particular class. And then fortunately, I never had any struggles with, with other coursework and did really well with the USMLE. But it was, you know, that type of class was very different than anything I had experienced prior to medical school. And I just needed to learn how to study differently. Yep, that is so true. And that's uh, part of what we're looking to do as a platform is to help people learn to study better. And, you know, as we've said since inception, study smarter, not harder. Uh, it's pretty low hanging fruit as a tagline goes, but it's, it's, truly true. A lot of the transition from undergrad or, uh, you know, non-professional school training is learning an entire different mindset when approaching examination preparation and learning material that is incredibly expansive and very challenging to, to keep in focus and in your mind when there's also so much you've already learned, have to learn, and need to keep in mind for the upcoming test. What about your best test-taking success? Well, I, I think uh, USMLE Step 2 is probably my greatest success, which um, would make sense since I've written the books around that. Um, I just found that the subject matter really tied into my own interests. Um, I relished the opportunity during medical school to get out of the classroom and into the clinical environment. And I really made it a point to read about the cases that each of my patients had. And it was an environment in which I really thrived to make those connections in, in patient care. And that's not to diminish the amount of, of study that it required for the USMLE, but I've kind of found that that exam was a culmination of all of the work that had been put in during third year of medical school. So when it comes to your overall kind of undergraduate medical education experience and what you've learned as an educator, what would you change about either, you know, your medical school studying, your board preparation at that time, things of that nature? Well, I think students now um, have some tremendous resources. We went back when I was going through medical school, never really took practice tests as a way to prepare for the USMLE. And so the question banks that exist, I think, are, are just a tremendous resource and, and really help students focus what they're learning. And then some of the uh, board review books that are available really boil down what is available in all of the textbooks into um, more bite-sized chunks and allow you to focus on, on what you need to learn. I will say, kind of reflecting some of what you just said about Inside the Boards, what I find particularly compelling about Inside the Boards is the ability to really break down questions and, and look at them from a kind of a question writer's perspective about what the key aspects are and how to think about a question, because there are a lot of test-taking strategies that you can utilize to, to help you get questions right, even when you're not 100% sure of the correct answer. 
Yep, and we're going to be fleshing those out uh, more and more on the podcast with you. Our Step 2 Study Smarter series is a little bit delayed because of uh, some new partnerships that we've undergone. And uh, as well, the audience is probably used to me complaining or mentioning my own personal life and clinical involvement. So I've had a lot of clinical work uh, this past month. But with more help, uh, your involvement and some of the other exciting kind of additions we have to the ITB team. Our goal starting at the beginning of this year is to get out content uh, more consistently and to really expand the the content offerings that we provide so that students get, you know, a lot of those question dissections and learn the sorts of principles that will help them do well on tests. And for my part, like I completely understand and and students should as well that you know what is on the boards is is definitely not what occurs in a clinical setting very often but you really can't prepare for a standardized board exam in my opinion by just doing clinical kind of work and learning on the wards specifically just because there's there's a lot of regional differentiation in terms of how things are are treated different capabilities for whatever hospital you're at when it comes to diagnosis, things of that nature. So I'm a firm believer in teaching to the test from an educational standpoint and helping students master an understanding of approaching exams because I think it improves their lives a bit and reduces some of that anxiety that surrounds you know doing well on an exam. So that's what we're here for. That's what we're going to do more of. And we are definitely excited to have you aboard, Ted. I'm really excited to be part of this as well, Patrick, and I hope my involvement will help get these podcasts out on a regular basis and as well as some of the other offerings that are in the works in the background that I think will also really benefit students going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. Um, You're going to be on here a lot more in the near future. So check out TEDxOConnell.com. We will put a link in the show notes to some of the resources that uh, you had mentioned, which you've been involved in. And welcome to the platform. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Thanks so much, Patrick. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Boards Insider. That's my personal, well, I tweet from that account. It's just me. I guess you can follow me at Darth Beeman on Instagram, but that's my personal page. We are at Inside the Boards on both Facebook and Instagram as a company. So Merry Christmas. There you go.